Revelation chapter 4, it's page 1236 in the Pew Bibles. John continues his vision uh, as it's granted to him on the Isle of Patmos. He says, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. Amen. May God bless to us this reading from his word. I want you to picture the control room at Supreme Headquarters. Out in the battlefield, there's a war going on. There are casualties. There are deaths. In some areas, the enemy is advancing and the troops are on the retreat. In other places, while there are fatalities and problems and difficulties, nonetheless, the troops are moving forward slowly, but definitely, and they're beginning to capture some enemy territory. And in the control room, it's lined with maps and with screens and with people who are looking at monitors, watching carefully everything that's 
happening. Uh, communication lines are open to all the units, all the battalions, as they are carrying on the battle in the theater of conflict. But in the control room, the chief of staff is present. And he determines the strategy, and he makes the decisions, and he sends out his orders to the troops who are out on the ground. Now, in Revelation 4, it's as though the Apostle John has been called into the heavenly supreme headquarters. John is out in Patmos. He's very aware on that island of the casualties and the difficulties which the troops are experiencing on the battlefront. He has just written down these letters to the seven churches, and to be honest, his message to those seven churches is a very mixed one. Some of them need to be comforted, some of them need to be encouraged in the battle, but some of them need to get active and need to get busy. And perhaps John is wondering in his own mind, is there a plan? Is there a purpose? Is there a strategy that's being worked out here? Or is it all confused? Is it all chaotic? Who really is in charge? Is anyone in charge in the battlefield of this world? And that's why when we come to Revelation 4, come to the central section of this book, there's a set of visions which runs right through to chapter 16. Uh, maybe you're impatient and you'd love to get on to the good stuff, you know, the interesting stuff like the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Uh, those are the, the most familiar visions of that central set of visions, but they're actually not the most important part of this revelation. They represent the things which must happen, but they do not explain why these things must happen. So if you notice in verse 1, the little word must, I will show you what must take place after this. It's a word that's used seven times in the book, and as you know, uh, seven is never an accidental number. Uh, particularly not in Revelation. The first seal isn't opened until chapter 6, but the vision which comes before it and the visions which constitute chapters 4 and 5 are actually the most important visions for this whole section. For they actually explain that little word must for us. They explain why the world will not remain as it is. They will explain why the axis of evil that's present in our world will not prevail. They'll explain why the kingdoms of this world will one day become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It explains why Babylon must fall in order to make way for the new Jerusalem. And why in the end of the story, the dwelling of God will be with his people. These visions in 4 and 5 explain why these things must be. And it's only as we, along with the apostle, investigate heaven and the heavenly operations room 
that we can have a better grasp of what's happening in this confusing and difficult world of ours. Because it is confusing. It is difficult. It's hard to make sense at times of what's going on around us. Two things to note in the chapter, two very simple points I want to make briefly. First of all, the sight John saw, and then secondly, the song John heard. There's something here that God wants us to see, and there's something here that God wants us to hear. So what was it that John saw? The first thing John sees in his vision into heaven is a throne. Seen here for the first time, the throne is the dominant feature of this book. Forty times John will refer to this throne. And everything that's described in the next few verses is described in relation to this throne. No fewer than eight participial phrases refer to the throne. Upon the throne is someone sitting. Around the throne there's a rainbow. Around the throne there are 24 other thrones. From the throne comes thunder and lightning. In front of the throne are seven lamps. In front of the throne is a crystal sea. And in the middle of the throne and around the throne, there are four cherubim. This throne is the center of the universe. And the most important thing to note is that the throne is occupied. Maybe you remember how Dorothy and her three companions journeyed to the city to request help from the Wizard of Oz. And when they got there, they were terrified by his powerful voice and his apparently awesome presence. But when Toto pulled back the curtain, they found that the great and powerful Wizard of Oz was just humbug. His imposing presence was a smoke and murders act that behind the veil was an imposter. Well, behind the veil of heaven, John sees no imposter. He sees God himself. Interestingly, John doesn't actually call him God. He refers to him as the one seated upon the throne. And in fact, that's John's usual way of referring to God. He says more about him by calling him the one seated upon the throne than simply by calling him God. There is, of course, another throne in the book of Revelation. In chapter 13, when you come to it, the dragon has a throne which he gives to the beast. And the whole world is deceived by the false prophet into worshipping the beast who sits on the throne. That's chapter 13. But Revelation doesn't allow us to consider the world as bipolar. There are not two equal and opposite poles to the cosmos. We're never allowed to consider that Satan as is equal or opposite to God, or the beast is equal and opposite to the lamb. The throne of the dragon, the throne of the beast, is counterfeit. The one who sits on that throne is an imposter. And at the moment of God's choosing, he will be overthrown effortlessly as the dragon and the beast and the false prophet 
all come to the end of their careers. The cosmos has but one throne, and the one seated upon it is the one who is really in charge. That's why the things shown to John must happen. The existence, the occupation of that throne is the guarantee that these things will happen. And that's the vision that you and I must have. That's what God wants you and me to see tonight. When John begins to describe the one seated on the throne, he uses the language and the symbolism of precious stones. The one who sat there had the appearance of a jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. <coughs> jasper is a transparent stone, rather like a diamond. Yet when it's viewed from different angles and in different lights, there's a whole variety of vivid colors. And it signified to John, and it signifies to us, the glorious and the infinite perfection of God. And especially, it shows us the purity and the dazzling brightness of his holiness. The carnelian or sardine stone or blood-red stone speaks of God's justice. He is a holy and a just God. A God who will ultimately right all wrongs. A God who ultimately will bring his wrath against all sin and all unrighteousness. <clears throat> and added to that, there's this rainbow around the throne resembling an emerald. And there's never any doubt about the meaning of the rainbow ever since the days of Noah. The rainbow has spoken of God's covenant grace and mercy and love. And the only way we sinners can look at the jasper and the sardine stone of perfection and justice is through the rainbow of the covenant of grace. Were it not for the covenant of grace, we couldn't approach such a throne. We couldn't even look upon it. And that rainbow resembled an emerald. Green, as every schoolboy knows, is the color that occurs right in the middle of the spectrum. You remember it? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Richard of York gained battles in vain. That's how we remembered it at school. Or in the part of the world I came from, more coarsely as run on, ye great big ignorant vulture. Um, <laughs> but it's a way just to remember, uh, remember the spectrum. And of all the colors, our eyes are sensitive to more shades of green than any other color. It's the color that's most restful to our eyes. The fact that grass and trees and vegetation are green is not a mistake. And the rainbow is like an emerald, speaking of peace and restfulness. That this covenant of grace brings peace and rest to anxious sinners like us. And so it's these three precious stones, the jasper, the carnelian, and the emerald, that really summarize the gospel for us. God's holiness and perfection. God's justice and his hatred of sin, but grace and peace 
through the new covenant. And it's the covenant of grace that enables sinners like us to stand in the presence of one who is like a jasper and a sardine stone. And the old man, John, quarrying away, carting those rocks and those stones down to the harbor in Patmos so that they can build roads all across the Roman Empire. The old man, John, weary in body and maybe weary in spirit, worried and concerned about the state of the church and the state of the world, is brought into the presence of God to know this fact, that behind and above this world, there is a person, there is a power who is worthy of our praise and our worship. In spite of all rumors to the contrary, the church of Jesus Christ is not an abandoned minority in this world. We are the children of a great and wonderful Lord who now sits on the throne, who accomplishes his purposes, who orchestrates the events out on the battlefield, and who will one day bring about a glorious victory. So the vision of Revelation 4 was carefully calculated to restore and to renew hope in John. And it does the same for us, doesn't it? That in the control room at Supreme Headquarters, there's one who can control and supervise all the events on earth in order to accomplish his good and perfect will. That message is reinforced in verse 4 when John sees the 24 elders. 24 elders representing 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles, representing the whole church of God throughout the Old and New Testaments. And John sees them dressed in white raiment and wearing crowns of gold. And the message is, you see, that the, all the promises made to the overcomers in the seven churches will actually come true. There will come a day when the church will be totally victorious and will be completely sanctified. That's what the white robes mean. All the imperfections, all the blemishes, all the stains, all the corruption that currently characterizes the church and characterizes us personally, all that will eventually be gone. And Christians will be holy and pure and spotless. And the church will be victorious at last. That's what the crowns of gold confirm. Every pain, every trial, every difficulty will be a thing of the past. And we will appear with Christ in glory. You remember how Graham Kendrick put it in a song from a few years ago? There'll be crowns for the conquerors and white robes to wear. There'll be no more sorrow or pain, and the battles of earth will be lost in the sight of the glorious Lamb who was slain. What we see in heaven reassures us that God is in control. 
But secondly, not only is there something to see, there's something to hear. The song which John heard. And you know that there's a lot of singing going on in Revelation. And on this occasion, it comes from very strangely described creatures in verses 6 to 8. In strength, they're like a lion. In the ability to render service, <clears throat> they're like the ox. In intelligence, they are like humans. And in speed, they are like the eagle. But the most important thing is what they're doing. Day and night, they are worshiping God. Day and night, they are setting forth his glory. God himself is the object. He is the focus of their adoration. And they are totally taken up with singing praise to the Lord. It's worth pausing to make a simple point here. This chapter tells us that in heaven, God and God alone is the object of worship. Not any creature, not the Blessed Virgin, not the saints, not anything or anyone else but God alone. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Worship declares the worthiness of God. What you think of God will be reflected in how you worship him, in the worth you ascribe to him. Unfortunately, and here I'm guilty as everyone else is, we're more taken up often in our worship with the physical surroundings, with the other people who are in church with us, than we are with God himself. We look to the front and say, who's leading the praise today? Who's in the next pew? We think more about what's going on around us than we do about focusing our hearts and minds on God himself. If you'll allow me uh, to speak of one of my uh, pet hates, I don't like too many distractions in worship. I don't like it when people talk to one another during the service. I don't like a lot of unnecessary movement uh, during the service or before the benediction. I don't want to be distracted. That's not always possible. Things happen in church. But when we come to worship him, we really want to focus on the Lord and we want to open our hearts to him. And I know that's basic and I know it's elementary, but it's easy to forget that when you sing, it's God you're singing to. That when we pray, it's God we're praying to. And when we listen to the word of God being read and preached, it's God who is speaking. And our services of worship are for the worship of God. We're met in his presence to glorify him. I think we've made a mistake in our modern church in seeking to make it more user-friendly, we've missed out on the one thing that makes the Christian church different and attractive. And that is a sense of the presence of God. That's what people crave. That's what people look for. We're not trying to compete with the entertainment industry in our services. We could never do that. But what we're seeking to do is to bring ourselves into the awesome, majestic presence of God and to know that we're engaging with him. And what is it about God that makes him worthy of our worship? 
Well, according to this song being sung, there are three things. He's holy, he's everlasting, and he's the creator. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God the Father is holy. In himself, he is perfect and pure and free from all sinfulness. He is majestic in holiness. Holiness, says Edwards, is the sum of all his attributes, the outshining of all that God is. And God the Son is holy, totally without sin, the holy child Jesus. And throughout his life, he remained pure and separate from sinners. And God the Spirit is holy. He is the Holy Spirit. His task is to make us holy, to sanctify us, to convict us of our sin, to create a desire within us to be holy, to strengthen us so that we change our ways and our attitudes so that we can become God's holy people. Is it any wonder that the four living creatures express God's holiness as thrice holiness? Holy, holy, holy. So don't be in any doubt about the one whom you're worshiping. And understand that it's only as you and I are holy that we'll be able to spend eternity in his holy presence. Some people think that they're going to heaven to be with God after they die, but they show no evidence of any desire or longing to be holy now. And if you don't have a longing and a desire to be holy now, you'll never be in God's heaven. But the wonder of grace is that this perfectly holy God is prepared to take us totally imperfect sinners and through Jesus to make us fit for his holy presence. And that's a reason for worshiping him. He's holy. He's everlasting who was and is and is to come. He's the eternal God and that too should call forth our worship. We cannot contain God. We cannot restrict him. We cannot put him in a box. We cannot pocket him up. He's eternal. And that just blows our minds. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And he is the creator. For you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. John Calvin says creation is the theater of God's glory. It's the place where we can see his power and wisdom. And that gives us reason for praising him. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul. How great thou art. Recently, someone pointed out something interesting to me. He said, if you put something man-made under a microscope, you'll begin to see all the defects and all the blemishes that are invisible to normal sight. But if you put something that God has made under the microscope, like a rose petal or a snowflake, then it appears more beautiful and more intricate the closer you examine it. And the creation around us is eloquent testimony to God's power and glory. That should lead us to worship and praise. Is God exalted as we sing and as we pray? 
Or do we deny his glory by our sometimes poor, half-hearted, superficial worship? If we see what John saw, if we hear what John heard, then we'll be able to worship him as we ought. And we worship God with our lips as we speak and sing his praise, and we worship him with our lives as we live for him. That's where verse 10 comes in. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. It's a picture of consecration. It's a picture of dedication, because we know that worship's not a Sunday-only activity. It's a daily discipline. It's a daily sacrifice. God is worthy of more than one hour a week from you, one hour out of 168. He wants all of your life. He wants you to worship him when you're together with his people in that special and sanctified way, but he wants you to worship him in your home and in your marriage. He wants you to worship him as you teach and train your children. He wants you to worship him in your work and in your labor, in your recreation, in your leisure, in your reading, in your friendships. Because of who he is, God wants all of us. He wants all of our lives. So what we do when we come together with God's people is so central and so important, but it's but one aspect of our worship. We bring everything that we are. We bring all that we do to God in worship. So what's the benefit here? Well, this book of Revelation helps us to center our worship. It's focused on the throne and its occupant. And upon that throne is one who is both holy and worthy. And that worship should reorient us. Because throughout this week, we're going to lose our focus. We'll go to our jobs tomorrow. We'll go to the activities of this week. And other things will compete for our attention. Idols will arise, clamoring for us to acclaim them as being worthy. And we become fragmented. And it's only as we worship the Lord that we're centered again upon God. Worship also gathers us together, doesn't it? Uh, the book of Revelation shows that worship is a communal activity. The cherubim, the elders, the angels, the saints who gather around the throne, they're not an assembly of individuals. They're a community, the servants of God gathered to acclaim their sovereign Lord. And we're here this evening as part of God's family, a family that stretches around the world, a family that stretches through time. So when I sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, it's not just me singing that. I'm singing the same song that's sung by the seraphim who were seen by Isaiah, sung by the cherubim, seen by John in Revelation, sung in Hebrew and Greek and Latin and English and countless other languages throughout the world and throughout time. All of the saints gathered below join all of the saints gathered above in adding their voices to the cherubim and the elders and the angels gathered around the throne. Together, we acclaim that God is holy and God is worthy. Worship gathers us together. And of course, finally, worship must always lead to a response. Worship in the book of Revelation is always responsive to the being and the deeds of God and of the Lamb. The cherubim worship because they see God. The elders worship because the cherubim proclaim him to be holy. And for me to worship, I first have to see the Lord. I have to be given something to respond to.
I must be shown the being and the deeds of God. So we gather here as God's people on the Lord's Day, not just to worship, but we gather to have our vision refreshed, to have our eyes opened, opened wide to see God enthroned in glory. We open our ears to hear again that song that echoes around the throne. Folks, your news bulletins this week will tell you that this world appears to be in chaos. It will tell you about hardship and suffering and difficulty and pain. That's the reality of the battlefield of this world. We need to remember that at the Supreme Headquarters, there is one who is enthroned, who is working out his plan. And that reassures us because we know that nothing can happen in this world apart from him and that ultimately everything that happens will serve his good and glorious purposes as he will at the last bring us to glory and to be part of that company around the throne. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for revealing yourself so clearly to us in your word. And we pray that as we face the inevitable challenges of this week, we may do so in the assurance that you are sovereign and that even in spite of the fatalities and the casualties of the battlefield, ultimately you will make all things work together for the good of those who love you. Help us to be reassured by that, Lord, and so to lift our hearts and our voices to you in a glad song of praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.